Welcome to Get in the Herd, a podcast about addiction and recovery brought to you by the McShin Foundation. If you or a loved one are looking for real discussions about addiction, recovery, stigma, advocacy, and most importantly, hope, then stick around. Thanks for joining us. Now sit back and get ready for another great episode of Get in the Herd. Hello, folks. John Senholzer here, live from Richmond, Virginia, the McShen Foundation, one of our uh, Get in the Herd series podcasts. Happy holidays to everybody. I hope everybody's having a good holiday so far and will continue to do so. We have a very special show today. Very excited about this show. Of course, we got the famous Nathan Mitchell on my left, <laughs> the old regular at this, the award-winning host of this show, and uh, what I, who I call Paul K. I don't want to butcher his last name, but he's down from Arlington, Virginia. But we'll do a couple of quick introduction, uh, introductions from our guest. Paul, you go first. Okay, everyone. I'm Paul Kolzbrenner, um, person in long-term recovery um, since uh, – March of 1988, and um, here today, I, I've come down to McShin often. I love spending time here, seeing what's going on, interacting with people. Um, I am currently, I work with a SAFE project, helping them on their SAFE Communities Program, and I'm also a member of the Arlington Community Services Board, where I chair the Substance Use Disorder Committee, and I also participate in ARI, which is the Arlington Addiction Recovery Initiative. So we work on a number of different issues uh, related to uh, you know, trying to help people uh, find recovery, find services, and 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 maintain recovery. So it's we, great to be here. So we have a very rare breed in the house tonight: an old timer in recovery, a government consultant, and a bureaucrat. So <laughs> you know, I'm gonna have fun with this one today, <laughs> Nathan. Well, actually, if I can, Paul, um, for those who may not know, what is what is safe? Uh, Safe Product it stands for Stop the Addiction Fatality Epidemic. Okay, um, it's a national nonprofit. It was started by um, Admiral Sandy Winnefeld and his wife Mary. Uh, after unfortunately they lost their uh, younger son to uh, overdose when he was 19 years old, and so they work along several different lines, um, but focus on communities, campuses, and veterans. And we have various programs, you know, along along those lines to uh, look at those specific populations and have, have a focus towards uh, helping people in the in those areas. Thanks. Thank you so much for coming today. Um, as you all know, uh, many of you know, I'm, I'm Nathan Mitchell and I'm a person in sustained recovery from a substance use disorder. And uh, I love that I've got uh, sitting right here next to me, uh, two two people who got clean in the eighties, uh, you know, got their found that sobriety, and bring that long, long, long term recovery to this to this podcast. Um, I'm I'm a person who works every day to become a little more acceptable, a little more responsible, and a little more productive um, to be of service to the to the community. And I'm really grateful to to be here and be able to sit with you, John. I know you've got this uh, incredible PowerPoint that you shared, and I know you want to talk about that. So I'm going to stop talking and let you talk. <laughs> well, Nathan, you're getting to be quite the mind reader, man. <laughs> hey, uh, folks, for those who don't know me, though, I too am a person in long-term recovery from substance use disorders. For me, that means I've been, you know, drug and alcohol free for over 38 years. And and you're getting ready. We're going to go through a little PowerPoint. One that we uh, showed, we presented last week to the Substance Abuse Service Council here in Virginia, which is a uh, a council that originally was a a governor's council, and I believe it's the General Assembly Council, but Senator John Bell was the chairman of it, and Senator Boyce Coe, and, and I believe Delegate Hope, and there was another delegate, uh, 
Murch or I can't recall the name. Delegate right. Hodges. Hodges. Yeah, but, he's a Republican. But it's too. a council that has members on it, and they have bureaucrats on it, and every now and then they slip and they let a guy like me present to it. <laughs> uh, but I also sat on a joint Senate House subcommittee for three years in 2009, 10, and 11, SJ73 and SJ318. So I have extensive knowledge of the topic we're going to discuss today, as well as this General Assembly session begins my third decade advocating down at the General Assembly. So if I come across as jaded and frustrated during today's show, that's because I am, and I come by it honestly. So uh, I guess, Todd, we got that PowerPoint up there. People can see it. Uh, let's go to the next slide. And uh, when I was talking to Senator Bell, he said, John, look, he called me on a Monday, said, well, I want you to present Wednesday. Just just come up with some solutions, something you think we can do, you know, this session that's that not going to hurt a lot of people. And the first thing I said, well, you could get the governor to make an announcement that 12-step meetings are at least in the category of education. And the Supreme Court seemed to think we're in the category of religious so we should certainly be able to have 25 people at a meeting, you know, especially if they physical distance properly and follow CDC guidelines. So 12-step meetings do not fall in that 10 people or less. And I also will talk about it here in a minute, you know, there was some money awarded to the Virginia Association of Recovery Residences that they got hung up in bureaucracy, authorized, you know, write the check July, and here it is December, and they haven't got their money yet knowing they got to spend it by the end of the cycle. So it's another example of bureaucratic barriers and BS, uh, their way of messing with one of the most uh, practical recovery solutions in the community, and that's people with lived experience helping those with lived experience. So next slide, uh, Todd. The, um, you know, I think if we can throw some funds at the authentic non-government organizations, which are probably more effective in most cases they're less costly and they're ready meaning we're operational now versus bureaucratic uh, recovery support services which are a little more restrictive a little more costly and they're slow to gear them up you know i explained the difference between the two you know i, I use the phrase authentic recovery support service providers a lot versus the bureaucratic ones and like Paul, you work for CSB, so you know what it's like trying to procure funding for a recovery coach and the training they got to go through and the rules and the regulations. And, you know, God bless everybody involved. It's, it's, it's not the worst thinking in the world, but it, it, it can be problematic when you need that immediate, let's get her done attitude. You know what I mean? Did you, do you have that in your CSB? You got peers up there, right? Sure. Yeah, we have a couple peers that work with, um, you know, people coming out of the criminal justice system, people uh, looking for treatment, and we're actually redesigning a uh, safe station program. So anyone who wants to, without fear of uh, arrest or prosecution, if they're under the influence or have paraphernalia, can walk into uh, any fire station 24-7 and get connected to a peer and get connected to uh, services. You, so you have two Two full time, yeah. And how big a population do you also? How big did you? Two hundred sixty thousand. Wow. So here, here we are in the middle of the metropolitan Richmond area, and I know between McShin, True Recovery, War Foundation, Real Life, the VAR members, we we probably have over a hundred. Yeah. Authentic peers in this community right. ripping and running. Yeah, and I will say that's you know that's just the county. We we work with other groups. Um, 
uh, and NGOs and other nonprofits that that also have peers. So, so there's more than just a couple yeah. running around up there. Yeah. I knew there were. That was like a trick question, yeah, yeah. you know. <laughs> I, I was just really demonstrating the difference between authentic peers and right. and NGOs. And we use everyone we can. I got you. Next slide, there, Todd. The um, for those who are watching, you'll have access to this PowerPoint, of course. And this this whole session is being you know, taped and filmed. It'll be on our homepage forever. But these are just some websites you can go to that we have very good evidence, very good data on. Next slide there. And, um, you know, and the reason I'm always big on, you know, heavily funding the authentic recovery support providers that aren't government agencies is simply because you get a lot more bang for your buck. And, you know, what that looks like here in the Richmond area, for example, we have we must have 500 sober beds in this community, 500. Mm. And that's a lot of beds. Matter of fact, we probably need one less jail in this community as a result of that. And I'm glad to see that the court systems and the prosecutors, they see our value. And the day doesn't go by, we can't get referrals to us from the courtroom because they know these folks, the ones that are honest, open-minded, and willing, will have a very good shot at recovery and launching into recovery. And it's just, you know, we can, we can ramp up like we're opening up a new house next week, you know, we we could double and triple our capacity if we had the funding within 90 days. It's it's that simple for us. But to to run these things through your typical government agencies, it seems to take forever. And then the the rules and regulations they pile on, it just it becomes encumbersome at that point in time and and and, and I don't I'm not opposed to existing systems, but if we just use that COVID-19 mentality you know let's let's reshape some policies really quick let's throw some money at it you know nathan you've been following this space for a minute i mean what are your thoughts on that well yeah my thoughts of course being that when we you said that COVID 19 mentality and that what i hear from that is is a sense of urgency you know and we're looking at the numbers now i mean we're looking at overdoses and overdose deaths you know here in virginia alone you know hitting the 2000 mark by the end of this year which is you know an over what 35 percent increase over last year that's that's absurd that we were doing that you know we're absurd that we don't have the capacity and we're actually defunding resources that can actually provide real right. solutions so so paul what's it like in arlington that you know the, the overdose rates are up the relapse rates are up i mean what's y'all saying yeah we there? have uh unfortunately um in 2019 we had uh, only six fatal overdoses. Uh, last I checked, we're at 17 this year. Wow! And that obviously is a huge increase. And that does that doesn't include people that will go to D.C. or Baltimore or even down here to Richmond and overdose here. You know, these are just people that have unfortunately um, passed away from overdose in Arlington. But yeah, we've seen a huge increase uh, in non-fatal and fatal overdoses, overdose um, from opioids as well as uh, other substances and other substances. Well, did being you, mixed you, with fentanyl. at your CSB meetings, do y'all talk about that? Is there any sense of urgency to do something different or? Yeah, we, you know, it, particularly with the, within the substance use disorder committee, you know, and we work with our corresponding staff liaisons in the county. Um, they've done a good job of securing some additional funding to fund um, another, you know, peer recovery specialist as well as, uh, and what I really like is they've been, there's been more of a focus on recovery supports. So we will subsidize people um, if they're in an Oxford house for, you know, a cer certain number of weeks. And if they still are struggling, we'll, we'll 
extend it. Um, so just look at, looking at ways to help get people, uh, you know, on their feet, especially in early recovery, especially these that days. Your connection is vital, man. Yeah. I mean, that navigator that can help provide soft handoffs from one service to another, that's critical stuff. You know, on our next slide, I talk a little bit about, uh, and keep in mind that this PowerPoint we showed to the council wasn't necessarily in any particular order. They're all very important, but we actually talked about how important it would be to help reclassify some of these felony drug charges and treat these uh, addicts more like they got the mental illness that they do have. And there are five states that are reclassified from felony to misdemeanor, a user amounts of drugs, as well as uh, Oregon, which did a, a more of a Portugal type yeah. flip. But, you know, mm -hmm. I think here in Virginia, I told Senator Bell, and keep in mind, everything we talked about, Nathan can back me up on is that all the, the members present were, were pretty much thought these were all really good ideas and they're trying to figure out how to get them done sooner than later. But when, but that 10 day user amounts, you know, no more felon out than the actual drug user or paraphernalia. Now, of course, if there's all the crimes associated with that, so be it, you know, that gives a good opportunity to get these guys in, in these correctional, like especially jails. And we talked about how, when you do go to jail, make sure that if they suffer from mental illness, you sort of humanize the jail experience with these recovery programs really facilitated by recovering people. Of course, the cor correctional professionals have to provide the safety and the, you know, keep them locked up and feed them type aspect. But as far as delivering the recovery support, there's no reason why these hope dealers can't come in from the outside, do their 40 hours a week and develop those relationships, give them that hope shot that vision forward and yet that pathway. So when they get out, they already have relationships with recovery and they're easier to access. You got any of that action up there, Paul? Yeah, we, we, um, we have a, a special unit within the jail, um, where, where people are trying to recover. Um, not, not quite a recovery pod like you and I went to a couple of years back, but, uh, you know, has that focus and, and people, uh, come in and bring in meetings and, and, and speakers. I'd like to see more of that. Um, I think we just do a couple uh, meetings a week, but that's uh, that's important. And then, uh, like you said, reconnecting people, at, especially when they're getting well. You know, come you, out. our data shows that there is a fifty percent reduction in not only recidivism, mm -hmm. but the impact in the community addiction has, such as ER room visits, overdoses, things of that nature. But Nathan, you you are actually a recipient of this type of model we're talking about. Just in a you know. 30 seconds or so what, what was your little yeah so so i was arrested in 2016 um with a, on a possession charge and you know to come to find out that a possession charge you know is a felony up to 10 years in prison here in virginia and there is a first offenders rule which i qualified for at the time but of course i'm i was a person using and i didn't stop using and of course i ended up um failing to to meet the needs to become a first offender so i ended up becoming a felon as a result of this and in pretrial you know there was no introduction no access to and, and i'm in warrington in fauquier county so i mean i realize it's different by municipality but there was no access to any kind of recovery solutions what i ended up doing was fooling this woman that i was doing well and lost 35 pounds in front of this lady in the course of four months and she thought i was doing great while i was getting high in the parking lot after i got out of there so you know i ended up messing that up and then picking up new charges so what, happened, what changed what changed is so i violated in pretrial i violated again in probation because i continued to use and when i violated in probation i got sent back to warrington and the difference there from when i had been in um 
2016 to when I got there in 2018 was that um, uh, McShin had put a pod in there. McShin, you know, and, and it was a recovery pod and I had actual access to people who had been in the cells where I had been literally in the same cells who came back and said, you know what, there is a way out of this. You do not have to continue to do that. And it was the first hope shot that I had from an authentic peer. I still talk to on a regular basis. And we, we actually had a recovery center right across the street from yeah. the jail. So Nathan got out of jail, walked over to the recovery center, and within a short period of time, he's in a recovery house yeah, with down here in Richmond. And now he's one of our best peer leaders. And, uh, you know, th so one thing we did talk about, and that was maybe Virginia's not quite ready to reclassify from felony to misdemeanor, but certainly expand the first offender's law to multiple offenders you know let the judges have discretion you don't have to convict these people of these felonies especially if they'll comply with the jail program and on the next slide i just pointed out the uh six states that reclassified drugs oklahoma utah alaska california colorado and connecticut and these some of these are these are democrat and republican states these are red and blue so virginia doesn't always have to lag behind everybody they could actually be a leader in this movement and uh, Senator Bell and Senator Boisco, they both agreed. They said it's about time Virginia takes leadership. And on our next slide there, Todd, the, um, we talk about, you know, humanizing that correctional experience. Because, you know, a lot of folks that go to jail and prison, they suffer from trauma, you know. And if, if anybody's familiar with the ACEs score, the ACEs test, that verifies all this. So when you have a trauma survivor or victim going into these correctional facilities it makes them worse when they come out that's why it's so important to have these people with lived experience up in there giving them that hope shot but you got to have the capacity in the community to sober live in the recovery centers and it's just not enough tax dollars for the csbs to to do it the way they like to do it it'll just never happen so really by default our existing agencies really aren't capable of providing the capacity that, that we need in a timely fashion at a cost we can afford to get the outcome that these systems do give. Um, so, and we got some great examples on the next out of some fabulous jail programs that I personally know a little bit about, and that's Chesterfield Jail, Henrico Jail. Richmond City had a great program under C.T. Woody. I'm not exactly sure what it's like now. Pamunkey Regional Jail, Rappahannock, Shenandoah Warrington Regional Jail, and then and then I've had some good good uh, folks come out of Haynesville and Indian Creek in the DOC. One of our best peer leaders here. Just you know, we recently met over the summer at uh, Haynesville, and now he's he's one of my most powerful peer leaders. But these felonies will prevent them from working at a CSB. Is that a problem up there where you're at, uh, Paul? Um, yeah, they we have some. Like I said, some some jail programs, but I think we really need to. Well, you're in a jail up there, right? You got peers in there. Yeah, yeah. They... But when you hire a peer, you got to do background checks. Is felony a barrier, or can you waive them, or do you know? No, I, I, I know there is background checks. I don't know the exact nature. Right, because I know a lot of a lot of these state agencies they will not hire a peer with a felony, okay. and the sad part about it is we make the best facilitators and when i say we that's us in this space fortunately yet i don't have a felony but i know it's a big problem for a lot of these agencies because they can ding them on the background checks and that's a, not only a barrier but i actually think there's a little conspiracy in there you know one way to sort of hold back the whole 
peer movement called God forbid the peers save the day. You, you know, we can't have that happen with all them social workers sitting around. On the uh, next slide, you know, I, I, had to, I had to mention the part where if the insurance companies did the job they were doing back in the 80s, you know, when I got clean in 82, we had treatment centers on every corner here in Richmond. And, and they were great hospital-based treatment centers. You could go to any ER room, be in a rehab that day, and what these insurance companies were able to do basically was cost shift because now you got Medicaid out here picking up the slack and the quality of care is nothing compared to that commercial care you were getting in these treatment centers and these hospitals. So, you know, I was telling Senator Bell and Senator Boyce, you got you to gotta hold these insurance companies accountable. You know, they are in violation for the most part of the Mental Health Addiction Parity Bill passed in 2008. They're just simply not complying, and they're coming up with every reason why they don't have to comply. Do you know much about that, Paul? Or I don't think we have that, that issue with, our again, the facilities that, that are uh, run by the county. Um, we have two facilities. One includes a detox, um, and we haven't. How are they funded? Through, through the county the county funds yeah. them mm -hmm. so that's good yeah. so how many beds are and then there? we and then we like like with like with the peers we also work with other you know private private uh iops and 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 people that front uh, different kinds of well I, li I like the part where you build up the private sector iops and private sector rehab but make the insurance cover their fair share just don't rely on the medicaid expansion to take care of all of that because that's cost shifting plain and simple and also in the 80s remember our, our correction population tripled basically too so by shifting the cost the taxpayers not only picked up the cost in the medicaid department but in the criminal justice system and the you know, Department of Corrections. So I think with the explosion of ramping up this authentic non-government organizations, then we can down the road think of perhaps defunding some of these correctional agencies and criminal justice agencies. Now, I'm not really talking law enforcement or frontline. We actually need to beef up the frontline a little bit, beef up those jail programs and those those court programs. Well, there's just there's a lot of improvement to be made in those areas. Yeah, I, I have a I have a, a strong issue with the word defunding, and and because what you're saying defunding criminal justice, I I yes we need to defund, but I think you know we need to reallocate funds to crisis intervention treatment and, and totally agree. yeah. And so I mean I I, I know what you mean when you say cost shifting, cost shifting How about that? because I that that gets lost I think in the space in the the Black Lives Matter movement that defund the police just gets completely lost on what that's meant. Um, about reallocate funding. Yeah, come, reallocate. Up with a, come up with a kind cost, of word. Yeah, yeah in, uh, our, in Arlington we're talking a lot about how to better train the police and then again also pair them with people with lived experience with well, either mental health or substance that capacity building that's yep. where virginia we need to ramp up that capacity we we do need peers riding around with emts with policemen with you know every firehouse and police station should have walk-in i need help services have a peer available same day get them over to sober living or get them detox if that's what they need every emergency department now we all agree on that, you know, and, and that substance abuse council, they all nodding up and down. That's a great idea. That's a great idea. But you know, where's the stumbling blocks? 
Well, the, the stumbling block is the the ten thousand dollars per arrest that gets made, and and the the criminal justice system entirely. But well, there you go. Yeah. We're back to that yeah. reallocating to that. those funds Reallocate. we were talking about. Yeah. But on the next slide, I, I made a big shout out to the uh, the one after that one, Todd. That uh, nothing about us without us. Keep going, Todd. I'm way ahead of you up here on the table here. But I noticed in the Substance Abuse Council, they seem to agree with this too. At the, like at the CSB level, at the Department of Behavior Health level, all these community correction committee meetings, and every time there's a discussion on how to help addiction, well, by God, shouldn't you have a bunch of recovering people at the table too, talking about what worked for them? And you know, it sounds like they they trying up there in Arlington, Paul. I mean, you feel like you got good representation. Yeah, uh, you know, Patrick Hope was a former CSB member in Arlington. Uh, I think he has good understanding of these issues. Uh, our last kind of go around meeting with them, we talked a lot about the you know legalization, proposed legalization of marijuana. In Virginia. Oh, that's coming up on another slide here. Yeah, so. <laughs> and yeah, you know, had a really good conversation, and, and I'm, I'm open about being in recovery. And they all asked me questions like, you know, what what are the dangers here, especially with young people, and that, that's what the conversation, you know, how to protect young people if we're going to uh, decriminalize. Well, you marijuana. know, I, I explained to the council how legalizing marijuana is a win-win-win for everybody involved you know because number one once you regulate it you kind of take the black market out as long as you don't exploit the growers and the and the buyers and the consumers just treat it like the alcohol alcohol got a good model for that let the guys grow weed and sell it and get it in stores and but with the regulation you get to regulate the strength of it just like they do alcohol you got you know, you got beer, wine, 80 proof, 40 proof, 100 proof. You regulate it. And these kids, because it's illegal, they got more access to it than if it was legal. See, once it's legal, it's barcoded. <laughs> then you can know exactly. You can trace it back to where it comes from. Of course, much like alcohol, it don't seem to not too many people care. I don't see them tracing back those kids smoking cigarettes, you know, where they got those. So, so but we do have legal systems in place that handle the prevention, the regulation, the education. The kids are going to be better off down the road. And also, okay, my kid gets strung out on weed. I'd rather help a kid get off pot than alcohol or get off opiates or get off crack or get off huff and dust. So all the way around, and also 85% of marijuana consumers don't abuse it, just like 85% of alcohol consumers don't abuse it. So when, when the addict finds their drug of choice, you know, that's just the way it is. So I, I think for the marijuana argument, now the big argument is going to be, what do you do with the tax money? What are you going to spend it on? And I think since the non-government organizations have always never got funding to speak of, that's a perfect opportunity. You know, I suggest that 25% of tax dollars for marijuana sales go flow through to the non-government organizations providing that capacity that we so desperately need right now, leaving 75% for communities of color, for education, for all the, you know, harm reduction and, and veterans and everything else, you know. And uh, the committee, they they were, they were okay with this, you know. They, they had questions. And, and I'm glad you mentioned Delegate Hope because a lot of times Delegate Hope, his heart's in the CSB. You know, because he came through the CSB, yep. you know, so he's really married to the CSB. So he he's one of those members that, well, by God, the CSB ought to be able to fix it. <laughs> well, guess what? They can't. They would if they could, but they can't for two reasons. They'll never get enough money for the capacity we need. And their thinking just isn't like our thinking. You know, we are 
that that no nothing can, can substitute for an authentic recovery person with lived experience period you know what i mean and we're very capable of, of weeding out the bad apples and moving forward and our navigational growing pains and challenges you know we do a wonderful i think here you, you you've been to mcshin you see how we operate around here we don't play we're all about business so, so, but Delegate Hope, I think he's he finally realizing that, you know what, government is not going to have the answer for everything. Sometimes you got to reach to the weapon in the arsenal. If it's another recovering person, if it's without parallel, by God, we ought to use that person. Yeah, I think more and more elected officials are realizing we need to have a uh, everything approach, you know, use every tool we got. Well, they say that over and over and over, but yet they don't want to fund every tool we got or every approach. So, I'm all about to put your money where your mouth is. Yeah. Nathan, I'll see you over we, here. <laughs> well, we just had this discussion um, about how do we define authentic. You know, somebody asked me that, the, uh, Robert Legg asked me that, you know, the other day. And so we, we, you know, defining what these words and terms mean for us so that, that we're not going to, to ask for something that we're not, we don't know what, you know, to expect back. You know, I look at recovery as a, as a long-term, you know, as a long-term goal for me, you know, and, and one day at a time, yes. But I also know that it was really important for me to stay in recovery housing for two years. You know, personally for me, I have decades and decades of using, you know, I, I needed to change a lot in my life. It wasn't a 30 days and bam, you're done. You know, so there's a really, there's a, is an important part of the piece that I think that that may not be connecting with our with our policymakers is that you know recovery doesn't happen in a 28 day 30 day program it happens five year period yeah. if, if you can get a person through five years then there's 85 percent chance yeah. they'll, they'll be good to go the rest of their life and then and what authentic really means is non-bureaucratized <laughs> provider non-bureaucratized agency because right. once you get bureaucratized your effectiveness is greatly diminished and your costs are tremendously increased, plain and simple. Mm -hmm. And why would you want to do that in a time of crisis? We need every tool and weapon we can get. And, and, and if it's non-bureaucratized and if it's authentic, they should be happy about that, jumping for joy. But instead, they seem to be cowering and worried they might lose control or funding or something. <laughs> I don't get it, you know. These are their own children we're talking about. But Something about that bureaucracy, once you get up in there, I don't know if it's the air, the water, the paper, or what, you know, but <laughs> but th there's nothing wrong with non-government organizations providing authentic recovery support that are cranking out tremendous results, you know, so I'm all about that. Well, you, you mentioned the, the cannabis tax revenue, and the estimates are from about 142 to 300 plus million after five years uh, in that neighborhood. You're looking at 25% of that. You're looking at somewhere between like 42 and $75 million per year that, that you're asking. And and Excellent. I I think that's that, that oh, could no, make a huge difference, back. you know, in, in Virginia here in the Commonwealth because that can help a lot of people, you know, and actually... You know, helping the people getting out of jails. That we, we have a, a huge problem with that that reentry, you know, from incarceration into society where we, you know, there's weeks where services aren't being provided in a timely manner and we're losing people right off the bat. You know, McShin, what the, one of the things that organizations like McShin does so well is that bed to bed recovery support. And 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 without it, personally me, I wouldn't have survived, I don't think. So we need more. You know, we, we mentioned the $10 million, you know, Senator Bell, Senator Boyce, Delegate Hope. Well, what's it going to cost? Well, look, this session 
y'all should invest $10 million, period. And he said, well, what are we going to get for it? Well, that's 1,200 30-day stays in a recovery organization, sober living with peer supports, linkage to, you know, addiction professionals, clinical professions. And that is thousands. I couldn't really give a solid number on how many thousands of extra sober beds that'd be, but I'm guessing three to 4,000 range. That's two to three jails in Virginia they won't need. Now, I don't know what it costs to run three jails a year in Virginia, but I'm guessing around $100 million. So for $10 million, you get the spare blowing $100 million, and 50% of that money of those, you know, the residual is going to be there. Hmm. Meaning that that hundred million you're gonna save that fifty million every every year that goes up to a hundred million, then it'll double to two hundred million. And next thing you know, we simply won't need the capacity we have with the criminal justice system. That's when you can start reallocating those dollars back into the health side of things and the recovery side. So I think you know everybody in that committee, they 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 didn't really seem to have a problem. It's just what's it gonna look like, you know. Give us a white paper, John. Can you do a white paper? So now we're working on a white paper to sort of show in writing what this is going to look like, you know, what the benefit's going to be, the value's going to be. Now, Paul, you're sitting here listening to, you know, a true warrior in the authentic side of things, but yet you know how things really work inside bureaucracies and agencies and any thoughts jumping out at you right now you could share with us. Yeah, well, I mean, change is always slow slower than we'd like it to be um but yeah i mean you have a good uh, argument for kind of the return on investment here mm-hmm. and that's always uh, a good strategy to take with policymakers um who are going to look at the bottom line. Well, it's not like they don't have the money because i just every day i read the paper 10 million going out to a helpline 70 million going out to some air in the sky program i mean it's just as crazy the amount of money that i see going and, and coming and yeah. going and this is real investment real value real return on your money this is the kind of stuff bankers line up to lend money for mm-hmm. you know i could actually if, if, the, if virginia would guarantee me the money I, I would bet money I could go out and get investors to give me the money right away, knowing they're going to get their money back. So that's how good this stuff is. Nathan, I see you over there thinking hard. <laughs> well, I was I was actually thinking about what Debbie Rosenbaum here says on Facebook. Uh, do you have time for a question here, John? Sure. So Debbie Rosenbaum, she's a, a, well, a long-term listener and a board member here at McShin. Um, she says, Paul, this is a question for you, Paul. Okay. Um, are you able, as a person in recovery, to share your recovery with your participants, given the job that you hold. Oh yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, in our the CSPs vary a little bit from county to county. In Arlington, it's purely volunteer. Um, purely volunteer. Yeah. The, well, CSP the, the, the board members are. The board, yes. I think they're all volunteer, aren't they? Well, I think in Fairfax. Um, the, well, yeah, the CSP members. Are, are the volunteer, board members are volunteer. The CSP has 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 like services directly uh, underneath it. Um, it's it's structured a little differently. But as a board member, you can share all you want with oh, anybody yes. you want. Yes, and I and I do because I think that's important. Well, you're here now, so that's proof <laughs> that you do that. Well, you know, I have a follow up on that. What is the percentage of people in recovery to not recovery on your board? Um, I don't know of anyone else uh, in recovery on the, the CSB as a whole. Within how my, many board members on their Arlington board? Is it twelve, fourteen? Something like that. For at least, yeah. And 14, you're, you're the only recovery person on that yeah. board. Yeah. Now Ooh. on our Ooh. on our uh, substance use disorder committee, 
that that's not just CSP members. That's also people in, in the community. In. So we have other people. In well, see, that's part of the problem because the, the the by law, Virginia CSB board compilation, you're supposed to have a third of the board members are supposed to come and be consumers. Mm-hmm. One in the physical health side, mm-hmm. another in the mental health, and and, in, and a third in the substance abuse side. So a third of your board by law, according to the Virginia you know, compilation for CSBs, and they even tweaked it because they couldn't get, I guess, people in recovery from substance use, so they get family members on it. Right. So, I was going to say, there's there's some people that have family members involved with, who have struggled with mental health and substance mm-hmm. abuse as well. Well, I, I think if those boards were, were comprised of real recovery warriors like yourself and Nathan and me and people like us, if a third of these CSBs had real recovering people from substance use disorders with lived experience and solutions, then those boards would find out that they could probably do a little bit more than they think. Yeah. Now, I have a couple of people on the CS on the substance use disorder committee who are, you know, always trying to push to, to uh, be on the full CSB, you know, trying to get people that have had the lived experience on there. So, But the problem is you have to be appointed by a, a board of supervisors, right? Yeah, I mean, it has to be an opening, first of all. And then, yeah, you have to kind of work. This, so these politicians that get elected, they appoint the board members on the boards. They, yeah, they put on recommendation of the CSB. Um, it's, it's it's really both parties, the county board and the uh, community. So, board. so, so really, they basically, <laughs> they stack the deck, they rig the boards, man. Nathan, I see you chuckling <laughs> over there. I mean, yeah. they rigging the system, man. I, mean, I can only speak for Arlington. I think I think they've been very open to having people with a lot of diverse experience on there. So. If they were truly open, they'd have a third of their board compilation would be people in recovery from substance use disorders that can actually light light them up a little bit. But now I, I got to be fair to the Arlington CSB. I, I don't know much about them. They might be the best one out of 40 for all I know. <laughs> but I know I've been to a lot of CSB board meetings around the community, and and to me, it's almost disgraceful the way they respond to solutions that are at their fingertips. But because they got some executive director that take that drinks his Kool Aid from the state, that drink their Kool Aid from NASDAQ, you know, it's almost like a Kool Aid drinking club. How dare you go against what we're trying to get you to do? And you look at other boards, like I know, for example. The Hanover School Board just a couple years ago, one of the board members was saying, shouldn't we rename our schools that are named after Confederate heroes? You know, this is right before Black Lives Matter. And and the supervisor that appoints these people, they didn't reappoint them. They, I think they removed this person from the board because they weren't thinking like the will of the appointee. And, and boy, was that person ahead of the curve because the BLM hit. And guess what? They changing the names of those schools now, so maybe we just need to have a, a recovery live matter movement or something, you know, and get some change. But I'm probably getting too radical for a <laughs> podcast right now. I like that the recovery lives matter. Yeah. Well, I don't want to take away from Black no, Lives no, Matter, so no. I, you got to be sensitive of what's going on around you. As my wife reminds me, you have you are you are very lucky. You know that. <laughs> Oh, I'm super lucky. <laughs> you know, so on on my next slide, you know, the authentic recovery centers have have really, I say, the best value. But you know, one thing why recovery centers are so so important. It's a place consumers can just kind of walk into. Like Paul, while you're sitting here today, you know, we've had two or three people come here today 
just in since you not since you've been here, but since eight o'clock this morning, and they're now in sober living. You're going to do our three fifteen group today. You're going to meet several people there. That this is their first twenty four hours here. Yeah. Some of them came from jail. Some of them came from relapse. Some of them are just coming to recovery for the first time. Yeah. So that's one of the best values of the, these recovery centers, and they take so much pressure off the existing systems that don't have the capacity. So these recovery centers, we actually fill the gaps that make a big difference. And then, you know, every day we're linking these kids up to their addiction doctor. You know, we got a doctor right around the corner and they, they get their whatever medication they need. We, we, and we got four Zoom rooms in the building. So they're doing their counseling appointments. I mean, these recovery centers done right. You know, there's just there's no substitute for them. Yeah. And it's great that you guys are operating and having that in-person connection. Because as you know, one of the reasons the overdose numbers are going up is because a lot of treatment centers have gone virtual. You don't have that personal connection. Uh, and, it's, you know, as we know, it's, it's just it's just tougher. It's a tougher environment, too. Uh, I see Jesse. Jesse Wasaki, the ultimate weapon for an addict is a recovering addict. I want people in recovery speaking for me. Jesse, I hope you're having a good time up in Maine. I hope it's snowing <laughs> right now and you didn't bring the right clothes. But just so you'll know, all's been quiet down here at McShannon while you've been away on vacation. Matter of fact, we're using your office for a little group room down there. We got newcomers camping out down there. I don't think we've had a problem since Jesse's been gone, man. So Smooth sailing, yeah. It's amazing. You know, the cats away, the mice play, man. Wait, wait till you get done today, Paul. You'll see how calm everything is here today. That's because our chief operating officer is on vacation in yeah. Maine right now. Well, one of the reasons I came down today is to pick up my materials for the peer recovery specialist training that he's doing next it, month. Is he so, doing next uh, month? Is it a, so a, a, the big one? We're going to be spending. Yeah, we're going to spend. I've done the recovery coaching with him as well. But <laughs> this is we're going to have a lot of quality time. Oh yeah, Jesse, get ready. Paul's going to be moving in, man. <laughs> So would you like a recovery center like McShannon Arlington? Would there a place for us up there? Uh, yeah, I would love it. Uh, I, you know, not just for Arlington, but for, you know, surrounding area. Um, you know, like I said, I've come down here many times and, um, you know, you can just really feel the uh, what's happening down here and the positive energy and the, you know, the whole, you know, as much money y'all got up in Arlington. <laughs> I can't believe you don't have a McShannon recovery I, center I don't, up there. I don't control that, but, uh, I can make yeah, a recommendation. Yeah, but you think about it. I mean, good <laughs> Lord. You know, I often thought if the CSBs only did their jobs, we wouldn't need these recovery centers because they got 40 CSBs around the state. That's 40 potential recovery centers right there. But just don't bureaucratize the peers. You can, can you can, uh, you know, regulate them a little bit. You know, you need a little regulation in there, but just use use our accreditation, our national accreditation. And we could solve all these problems yeah. within a year or two. Yeah. I mean, you know, pretty, uh, uh, very often at the full CSB meetings, we will have people come in and do presentations. So maybe we can get you up there and talk about this model well, and how it works and that, do some education. That'll be your last meeting you'd be appointed <laughs> to after that. Because it seems like when I go to a CSB as a guest, the people that got me, they get fired or they don't ask them back. <laughs> Too bad Robert Legg ain't watching this. He would know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> Paul, well, maybe know, maybe we'll Carol do it then. Paul, Paul um, <laughs> you know I I've been in Virginia for for years. Um, m most of my my life I've lived in the Commonwealth of Virginia, and 
I didn't know about CSBs until I came here to McShin. And if that's frustrating for me as a person who's gone through jail twice, you know, because of the, as a result of my addiction. And I, I, that's, that's certainly an area that, you know, I think the NGOs and the CSBs can sort of work on collaborations. I'm a collaborator guy. I mean, I recognize um, that we have to, we have to collaborate in the space for, for common goals. And, and that certainly to me personally is a huge common goal. So how does that work for you guys in Arlington? I mean, you know, we talk about Step Virginia, we talk about same day access, and I, I always cringe when I hear same day access. I'm sorry, Paul, <laughs> because what that really means is same day assessment, you know, I, I find. So, and that, that we know you're a person in recovery, you know, John's a person in recovery, I'm a person in recovery, Todd's a person in recovery. We know that when an addict reaches out, that's the time we need yeah. to help them immediately, not three weeks, you know, you get to go, you know, possibly go to get a bed somewhere. So how does that work for you in Arlington? Um, we, we've been very successful in, in getting people into uh, a detox or treatment, you know, within 24 hours. That's awesome. Um, right now, certainly the numbers are a little lower, but, uh, I, I think we've, had, we've been able to have meet the capacity and, you know, in busier times and been able to get people to other places in, in surrounding communities. And that's one of the things I'm trying to do with kind of my counterparts in Fairfax and Alexandria is, is, is have more of a collaboration, uh, maybe create some kind of dashboard because, you know, we might not have a bed available in this community, but maybe there's some available over here and we're kind of in our silos still. And I think we can improve on coordination. Oof. You know, Debbie made a comment. She, she's a family member. She runs with family members. I don't want to break her in and them in these anonymous family programs or anything, but even she said that family members, concerned about their loved ones they love it when people in recovery interact with them and help them you know that they, they want those people they want us in the mix now don't get me wrong if you got a deeper level of, of needs then you want a deeper more um appropriate professional so and i and i try to tell these csb people over and over and over look you got some severely mentally ill people you got a, a some severe co-occurring disorders out there let the recovering people with substance use disorders help take the load off your backs a little bit so you can focus more on the severe services that do require a higher level of clinical experience and intervention. And blending the two together like that, you know, seems to me all they've been able to really accomplish is absorbing SA funds and get them buried in more severe mental illness funds. And, and we continue to be demonized and handled by the criminal justice system and and then we're back to stigma, you know, and and I just, you know, I just think there's a problem in that pretty in that aspect. And then I see Robert up there. <laughs> Apparently, he knows your attorney general, Parisa Dagani, Taffy. Yeah, um, Parisa has been and her office have been very helpful in kind of restructuring that safe station program. Um, she definitely, I think, has more progressive views than the previous Commonwealth attorneys who. They set up a safe station program where the only place to go is basically the jail. So yeah. uh, that wasn't maybe the best place to. Uh, hey, let me give you a hit right here for Parisa and, and your CSB. Uh, Water Waterville, Maine has a safe station in their police department. And over the last several years, we've had at least 50 people come down. From yeah, Maine. you've had a lot of people from Maine. And, and over half of them to this day are still in their recovery, enjoying yeah, life. a lot of them stay here, right? Yeah, mm -hmm. and you'll you'll see some here. You'll meet some you'll here hear maybe them. today. <laughs> but, you know, here we are. Arlington's only, what, 90 miles away? 
God forbid you 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 send folks down to one of the most successful recovery you know communities in the nation and all across Virginia. We do get a couple people here and there for some CSBs, and I and I gotta believe it's some of that SOR money they probably spent sending some people down here. But if I was a CSB in Virginia, I would utilize McShin every chance I got. Because, you know, yeah, we're your best critics, but we're also your best advocates, too. You know, and I, and I try to cheer these bureaucrats on and say, look, you know, for 20 years now, I'm beginning my, my third decade of advocating funds for you guys, but you still got to recognize the value of sober living run by sober people, recovery centers run by recovering people. I mean, a little teamwork here, you know, a little team play. These members on that substance abuse council, they wanted nothing more than to see peace in the valley. You know what I mean? And, and how are we going to do this together is a we thing. And, and, and people think it's us, but it ain't us. Remember, we're on the receiving end of nothing. You know what I mean? It, it ain't like, you know, let's put them in and fund them. No, we're, we're on the outside with nothing, it seems like. You know, so if there was ever a time to, you know, pony up and let's see what we're made of. Now would be the time. Thoughts, Paul? See you stunned over there. <laughs> no, I agree. I agree. I mean, I think uh, again, uh, all, okay, the, all got, the above approach. We got one out of the twelve board members on your and, board. Uh, agree. That's why we need <laughs> equal district uh, board compilation. We'll get all eleven, the other eleven board members on the show. You know, mm -hmm. going forward. <laughs> Yeah, I think I think there's going to be a lot of changes uh, in the next year. Um, obviously, with the new administration coming in, kind of a more top-down approach, uh, a more aggressive uh, attack, I guess, on the um, epidemic. As um, because now we know, now we have the data to back up what we've all known all along is that the numbers have been going up. Um, so hopefully, they will recognize the. Uh, impact that local communities can have and um, organizations like machine. Well, we got we got data showing that the number of recovery people are going up to come through these models. Mm -hmm. So don't wait five, ten years to, you know, take full advantage of Nathan. Yeah. I see you over there. You stunned too. I can see. <laughs> I'm 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 seeing that it's getting close to winding down here. We're at, we're at the fifty minute mark, and I know you want to take a break before. Uh, Paul goes to run his group. No, no, he's got 15 yeah. minutes. That, that, that group's at 315. Plus, I'm a Marine. There ain't no breaks for us, man. We go from one battle to the next, man. What do you mean break, man? What are you in the Army? N Navy something. I just need a few seconds a to mic microwave my coffee. <laughs> you stop by my office. I've got fresh coffee. Okay. Um, so any, any closing thoughts, Paul, or... Um, no, I just, you know, really appreciate being here and spend time with you guys. Uh, this has been a great conversation. You know, I'm always trying to learn more and, uh, you know, you can never know everything. And, uh, you know, I will definitely think about some of this stuff and, and try to, uh, incorporate it and get back to you guys. Well, let, let me ask help you provide more information. Well, let me ask you a quick question. I'm giving you an opportunity to be my devil's advocate here. And, uh, you, you know, me, you know how I roll, you yeah. see what's going on in my life and, my, my warrior type, you know, inside and whatnot. But if you were me, knowing the objective we're trying to accomplish, is there anything you do different? I mean, do I need to shut up more, calm down, or, or what? Well, I think there's a way. We, I think we got to find a way to, you know, get the word out about, you know, how effective you are, how um, efficient you are as, from a cost perspective. Um, the, the other cost benefits on the, you know, the criminal justice system and 
you know, you know, reducing the need for pe- having people incarcerate, incarcerated, you know, all those things need to be, maybe that's that white paper that those guys want, mm-hmm. but, uh, you know, putting those together in a real tight kind of information packet. So you'd appreciate a white paper. Yeah. Or you, something. Hear, you hear that, Robert? Get busy, man. Don't lay down <laughs> on that white paper. Um, yeah. Some, something that really kind of condenses all the things we've been talking about here in a, you know, with graphs and pretty colors that, pe- you know, people can quickly go through and quickly understand and say, okay, this, this, well, this well, works and this, this could have real benefits for our community. Well, I got 20 years worth of charts and graphs, but <laughs> I don't know if I'm using the right colors or not, man. Mm-hmm. Nathan. Closing thought. Closing thought. Recovery means, um, recovery means safer communities, stronger families, and uh, a healthier citizenship, healthier citizenry. So that that word right there, those three, those three things for me, I keep trying to nail that into my thinking. And how does that work? You know, as a cost benefit analysis, mm-hmm. return on investment, all those things combined, we go right down to it. it. Just we build stronger families, safer communities, and a healthier citizenry. Yeah, yeah I, I see Debbie. You shouting out Chesterfield County CSB for giving someone you love a chance at an RCO. You know, Chesterfield's one of those you know warm partners. Like a lot of CSBs, I probably don't give enough credit to what they're doing right. I seem to focus on what I think they should be doing, so I'm probably at fault for that. But yeah. you know, McShen, we are getting growing support not only from some of the CSBs and some of the state delegates and state senators. You know, SAMHSA, we got a grant with them, and we, we might get a, a second grant from them. And, you know, Henrico County's pony up some funds that are very helpful, very useful. So I, I think I think there's a trickle coming in. And, and when I asked you earlier, what would you do different if you were me? You know, the last thing I want to do is get in the way of that trickle. I want that trickle to mm-hmm. start rolling faster. But at the same time, I feel like if I go silent, this stuff rolls over top of us too, because I'm surrounded by you know a lot of new people in this space, and that and I don't think they understand what a kabuki dance really is, you know. Same rhetoric, different day, and I feel like I'm one of the few people in this space that I'm not up in the woods. I'm not lost, you know. I'm 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 standing back. I see the whole forest, you know. So, you know, I think I do got a, a bird's eye view on on what should happen. I just don't know the right technique to get these guys make believers out of them. Yeah. But anyway, we're so glad you come down today. I hope it was helpful and fruitful for you to be. I know the group's excited about you. I, I told them I have this wonderful man coming, going to share. Uh, so I got them all chomping at the bit. You know, they didn't want to hear pressures me. on now. It is, it is. Nathan has expectations. Always, it's so wonderful to have you, you know, leading, getting a herd like you do and getting that award for us, you and Alex. Oh, that was, yeah, mean, was Alex and Todd, yeah. That's a big deal. And then, then Todd, the man behind the curtain over there running the show, man. <laughs> My wife, look at your uh, your Christmas card. You and your five kids and your wife, you had your hat off. She said, who's that guy? I said, that's Todd, man. You never see him without his hat. He ain't got no hair, man. That's what he looks like without that hat. So what a beautiful family, you know, so – Thank you, Todd, for all your your work. And uh, everybody out there listening, uh, hope you have a happy holiday. And for the men and women in the correctional facility that are probably going to hear this in the next 30 days, hang in there. There's a lot of people out here pulling for you, a lot of a lot of resources out here, but you got to kind of look for them. So I suggest when you get out of jail or prison, instead of looking for your drugs and your drug dealer, 
Look for the people in recovery. Look for the recovery community. Make that connection. You will not be disappointed. I promise you that. You you definitely want to be an old timer in recovery. I'll give you that much. So much love and peace to everybody. Happy holidays. Happy holidays. Merry Christmas. the CEO of the McShen Foundation and a woman in long-term recovery since May 27, 2007. I have not used drugs or alcohol. Thank you so, so much to the Richmond Times Dispatch and all of our voters for Get In The Herd podcast. Those podcasts are amazing. Not only has it helped thousands upon thousands of people in their recovery, as well as family members, but it has helped me in my personal recovery. I get to listen to them now in my car through Spotify and iHeartRadio. And it's just really, really important for us to be innovative in the addiction field and the recovery community. So when COVID hit, we had to be innovative. You know, we really had to think of like, what can we do to reach people that cannot go to 12-step meetings? smart recovery, faith-based, whatever, um, that we're shutting down constantly. So we were innovative here at McShen. Let's start podcast. So with Todd, John, Alex, um, and some other staff, you know, we all just kind of jumped in who can do what. And um, with Todd's lead and John's lead, the podcasts have been amazing and we're still doing them today. So I want to thank you for all of your votes and all of your energy and all of your support of our mission of healing families and saving lives. Thanks.